0: We've been counting them down just the way you rank them with your votes. Six, five, four, three, two. And today, we come to the number one topic, according to your selection, that you wanted to hear addressed from the Bible. And the question we're looking at today is, what happens to those who never hear about Jesus? Now, I can understand why that would be on your mind, but as often is the case, I think there's a question behind the question here, and the question behind the question is, do people go to hell simply because they never hear the good news of Jesus Christ? That's kind of the question behind the question. And many of you may be thinking, look, if that's true, if that's the case, then that violates this kind of fundamental sense of fairness. And you may think that God is even cavalier or unloving. He's capricious. Perhaps in your mind that makes God even unjust. I can understand why some people would feel that way. But I think that conclusion grows out of a couple of assumptions that are really popular in our culture today. One of those assumptions that's incredibly popular is that all religions are basically the same. If you've not heard someone literally say that, I'm sure that you've heard it uh, spoken with just other words. It's sort of like climbing a mountain. We all want to get to the peak. We all want to get to the summit. But there's lots of ways you can go. I mean, come on. You can go up the north face and use your ropes because it's a sheer cliff. Or you can go around back if you choose and you can take a different route that's a little less strenuous. Might take you a little longer though. Or or you can meander and even, you can get a helicopter for that matter and go to the top that way. But all Of the paths lead to the same place and so it is with God or religion this assumption says your path to God may not be through Christianity it may be through Islam or Buddhism or you may go through Hinduism or Shintoism or Taoism or you may go through Judaism or New Age philosophy Or, you know, quite frankly, you can just make up your own religion. It doesn't really matter, this assumption says, because all roads lead to God. All religions are the same. The second popular assumption I think that people today are working with is that it's arrogant, actually arrogant to claim exclusive truth. I mean, come on, God is so huge and complex and... We're so small and finite and limited in our understanding. How could anyone or any group, for that matter, ever claim to have some exclusive angle on the truth? The question is, are these assumptions accurate? Are they accurate? And what really matters is not my opinion, right? I hope you know that. And quite frankly, what matters is not really your opinion either or what a national survey or opinion poll might say. What matters is what does God say in his word about this. And so that's where we've been going with all of these questions in this series, straight to the Bible, and that's what we're going to do again today. What happens to those who never hear about Jesus? But before we answer that straight out, I believe we need to deal with some of this baggage in the culture because it's very real. And trust me, believers, non-believers are often dealing with the same assumptions. So are they accurate? Is it credible to claim that all religions are the same? Is that credible? When you peel the onion. When you strip away the layers and get down to the essence, are they all saying the same thing? R.C. Sproul is a popular Christian theologian and author, and he writes, I once had a conversation with a Baha'i priest. He told me that all religions were equally valid. I began to question him concerning the uh, points of conflict that exist between Islam and Buddhism between Confucianism and Judaism, and between Christianity and Taoism. The man responded by saying (coughs) he didn't know anything about Islam or Judaism or the rest, but he did know they were all the same. I wondered aloud how anyone could assert that all religions are the same when he had no knowledge of what those religions professed or denied. I mean, how can Buddhism be true when it denies the existence of a personal God. And at the same time, Christianity be true when it affirms the existence of a personal God. Can there be a personal God and not be a personal God at the same time? Can Orthodox Judaism be right when it denies life after death? And Christianity be equally right when it affirms life after death? Can classical Islam have a valid ethic that endorses the killing of infidels, while at the same time the Christian ethic of loving your neighbor be equally valid? Those are good questions. And when you begin to check out the different religions, you will quickly discover that not all religions are the same. They are not the same. For instance, Hinduism says, it has a pantheistic kind of view, it says that everything is God. Uh, you are God. I am God. This chair you're sitting on is God. This building is God. This podium is God. This screen is God. Here a God. Every, there a God. Everywhere a God God. Okay? That's basically the belief. Or you can look at Islam that denies that Jesus was God. Or you can check into Buddhism where Buddha was actually kind of noncommittal about the idea of God. He, he was uh, kind of a little bit struggling with that idea, didn't know whether to affirm or deny. He actually is rather ag- agnostic when it comes to the concept of God. And yet Christianity says there's one God eternally existing in three persons god the father god the son and god the holy spirit so we can go with the assumption that all religions are the same but the reality is the reality is that christianity is different from every other religion in the world i think its uniqueness can essentially be summed up in a story that actually comes out of buddhist literature There's a story in in ancient Buddhism that's very similar to the story Jesus told about the prodigal son. You've got a son who uh, leaves home, takes his inheritance, dishonors his father, goes away, squanders it with wild living, blows all of his money, comes upon hard times, he finally comes to his senses, he's broken He gets the idea, going back home would even be better than this, so he comes back home humble and broken. Okay, up to that point, the story in Buddhism is very similar to the story Jesus told. But in the Buddhist story, the ending is quite different. The son comes home, and his dad forces him to pay the penalty for his past mistakes by living in years of arduous servitude. What happens in Jesus' story? The son comes home. His dad runs out to meet him with open arms, hugs him, kisses him, offers unconditional love and forgiveness and grace, and welcomes his son back home. Hear me today, friends. There is a big difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. And the biggest difference, I believe, is seen in how we get reconciled to God. How we get made right with God again. In fact, as I've studied this through the years, and I would encourage you to do the same, if you're in a genuine phase of exploration in your life, study the major religions. Here's what you'll find if you do study the religions of the world. They can all basically be summed up with a two-letter word that tells us how to be right with God, and that word is D-O, do you gotta earn it you gotta do enough to be good enough to get there to be made right with God you gotta use a Tibetan prayer wheel you gotta make enough pilgrimages to Mecca you gotta not eat certain foods you've got to knock on enough doors you've gotta hand out enough literature you've gotta have enough reincarnations All other religions believe you've got to do something in order to be acceptable to God. The problem with that idea is you never know when you've done enough. You never know. It's kind of like if you were a salesperson and your boss says, now listen, you've got to hit your sales quota. And you say, well, wonderful. I'm a hard worker. Uh, What is my quota? And she says, I'm not going to tell you. You just better hope you get there. You better hope you sell enough. And so you go out and you sell and you sell and you sell all the time with this anxiety, am I going to make it? Am I going to reach the quota? That's what every other religion in the world says. You've got to do something to make yourself acceptable to God. But along comes Christianity and says something radically different. You don't have to, do anything because it's not about what you can do even your best is not good enough you can be the top salesperson in the world it's not good enough you're not going to make the quota that's what christianity says it's not about what you do christianity says it's spelled with a different word d-o-n-e it's about what he has already done for us when Jesus died on the cross, you remember he said that, that Greek word, is tetelestai. It's translated, it is finished. It's been done. You don't, you don't have to add anything. You don't have to do anything else. It's already been done. Everything you need to be reconciled to holy God has been accomplished. And we don't have to earn it. Now, one of the verses we looked at in a previous message in this series, it's a, again, it's one of those verses in the Bible that if you don't have this tucked away in your memory, I I would strongly encourage you to. Here's what it says because it, it sums up what this grace, that word simply means unmerited favor, it's what it's about. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. It's not about what you do. To earn it, it's about what he's already done so that no one can boast. Religion is our attempt to reach out to God. Jesus is God's attempt to reach us. Big, big difference. You'd be saying, well, pastor, uh, hey, listen, man, I'll be honest with you. I like this amazing grace stuff. I like the song, I like the idea, grace, grace, grace. I can't get enough because Lord knows I need it. But pastor, I'm good with that. But if you're saying that Christianity is the only way, if you're saying that Jesus is the only Savior, the only way to God, i got to be honest with you, that's hard for me to accept. Because, and here's that other assumption, it's arrogant to claim exclusive truth. That's what the culture believes. And if you believe that, I'm just, I'll be honest with you, you're not alone. Jesus created a many Middle Eastern crisis 2,000 years ago when he said this in John 14. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. Do you, do you think that ruffled feathers? Woo! Boy, when Jesus said that all the... You know what? There are some people who believe that those words right there are the most narrow-minded, obnoxious, bigoted words ever coming off the lips of anyone. That's what many people believe about it. Maybe maybe you're an explorer today. Maybe you're in an exploration phase about all this. and, And quite honestly, that... That's a stumbling block for you. Because you just say, I don't don't know how it could be that narrow. Or maybe you're a mature follower of Jesus today. And honestly, even though you've walked with the Lord for years, every time you come across that verse in John's Gospel, you just kind of wince a little bit. Like, oh, boy. Because you go, I don't know how to explain that to my friends. When they ask, do you really believe Jesus is the only way, and I want to tell you, I have wrestled with that verse and this whole concept of the exclusivity of Christ for many, many years, all through seminary. I did a huge exploration into the other religions going, can I really believe this? When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And here's what I've concluded about it. You may not agree, but this is my conclusion, that those are not arrogant words at all that Jesus spoke. Rather, they're the greatest words of compassion and love that have ever been spoken. And here's why I make that statement to you. If those words right there are true, now look at them close. If those words are true, that is the most important information you will ever receive. And if those words are true, for Jesus not to share that would have been the most non-compassionate, unloving thing he could have ever done. You remember a few years ago when 33 Chilean miners, they were from the country of Chile, and they kissed their wives and their children goodbye one morning, and they went to their job, and they went. 2,000 feet beneath the earth's surface, going to work. They were miners, worked far beneath the earth. And in a a tragic accident, 700,000 tons of rock caved in on them. Nobody knew if they were dead or alive. Now, immediately, rescue workers began to drill down a narrow tunnel from the surface trying to get to where these miners were nobody knew if they were alive or not but they were drilling down trying to get there a day goes by there's anxiety and panic two days go by three days go by two weeks go by they're still drilling down trying to get there this little narrow tunnel to find where these 33 men are a month goes by six weeks go by Two months go by. 68 days go by without their loved ones knowing if they'll ever see them again. But then a rescue worker, and you can see a picture of it here, a rescue worker finally in a capsule that's only 21 inches in diameter finally burst through to where they are. And he says, follow me. This is the way. I've come to rescue you. If you want to be saved, you've got to enter through this narrow capsule right here. It's the only way. And the fact that the rescue worker came, verified this is indeed the way. And so after 68 days of being trapped, All 33 miners were rescued. They made the 20-minute trip up to the earth's surface and were reunited with their families. And there's all kinds of amazing pictures of reunions. And they slapped high fives and they hugged and they, they thanked the rescue workers for coming and making a way for them. Now let me ask you a question. Would anyone, would anybody accuse those miners of being judgmental, arrogant, and narrow-minded because they believed that there was one way to be rescued? (laughs) One way to be saved? Of course not. You see, while we may assume it's arrogant to claim exclusive truth, the reality is it's not arrogant to act upon the evidence it's not arrogant to act upon the evidence and that's what these miners did jesus said i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me but then he verified that by dying on a cross being buried being raised again from the dead appearing again to his disciples over 500 eyewitnesses at the exact same time, many of whom gave their lives claiming that he was alive. And so when you and I trust Jesus today as the only one to rescue us, it's not being arrogant. It's just acting according to the evidence. Now I think to be honest, and this is going to be a little hard for some of you to hear, but I feel like I need to say it anyway, One of the reasons that some people believe Christianity is judgmental, arrogant, and narrow-minded is because they've been around some Christians who are often judgmental, arrogant, and narrow-minded. Gandhi reportedly once said about Christianity, I like their Christ, I do not like their Christians. Atheistic philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, I will believe in the Redeemer when Christians look a little more redeemed. And Mark Twain famously said, After having spent a lot of time with religious people, I understand why Jesus preferred to spend time with tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) Come on, let's keep it real. And I just want to say to you, if you're in an exploring phase and you've been hurt by someone who claims to be a Christian, I am so sorry, because if they've had a judgmental, arrogant, narrow-minded, look-down-their-nose attitude toward you, that is far from the attitude of the one that we claim to follow. Because here's what Jesus did, which made the truth palatable. He brought grace and truth together in perfect balance. Can I tell you something I've discovered through decades of ministry and walking with Jesus, here's what I've discovered. Unless the truth, are you listening? Unless the truth is undergirded by love and wrapped in grace, it often seems obnoxious and repulsive to those who need it the most. Let me say that again. Unless the truth is undergirded by love and wrapped in grace... Truth never changes, but it's undergirded by love and it's wrapped in grace. It seems even repulsive and obnoxious to those who need it the most. Jesus was able to build bridges to people rather than walls, even though he never compromised the truth. And that's what we're trying to do, by the way, as a church. Never compromise God's truth, but bring grace and truth together together. In balance. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we are told as Christians to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, check these words out now, do this with obnoxiousness and a vile attitude. Right? You punch them in the gut with the truth, man. No, no. You never compromise the truth. You you bring what Scripture says, but you do it with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4 says something similar. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So maybe sometimes it's not just the truth that turns people off sometimes sometimes if we're honest it may be the way we deliver that truth and i just can't help but believe that if we undergirded the truth in love and if we wrapped it in grace i just cannot help but believe that so many more people would be willing to hear it and receive it so back to the big question of the day what about those who've never heard about jesus well the most popular well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. You know what it says. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But we usually stop there. We seldom go on and read the next two verses. Let's look at the next two verses, right after John 3.16. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He was on a rescue mission, even though the way was going to be narrow. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So believers, there's no more condemnation. You're not condemned. But whoever, and I put this in bold so we could really get it, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I believe those verses have to be the starting point for this question. You got to start with that foundation. We all have a death sentence on us because of our sin. And if that's where we stopped, it would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Well, welcome to the good news, folks. You're all condemned. All got a death sentence. No way out. God bless you. That'd be a pretty sad story if that's Where it stopped. That's the starting point. We've got to understand that. But I believe Scripture gives us clues and insights that help round out the picture. And so that's what I want to do with the minutes we have remaining. Let me share five statements that I think are critical for getting a handle on this question. And I want to begin with an observation that to me is very exciting. that we base on the shifting demographics of the world. Here it is. The so-called Christian West is, in many ways, the greatest mission field in the world. Now, particularly those of you who are kind of my age and older, I really want to make sure you understand this, but I want everyone to get it. Because I grew up with this mentality that North America and Europe, particularly, that's what I mean by the Christian West, as it's been called, so many of the great mission-sending countries of the world, we got all the spiritual light, and we're going to send it. We're going to give it. We're going to go to all the spiritually dark places in the world, and we're going to share that light. And that's what Christians have tried to do. But what I want you to understand today is that that paradigm has totally changed. There are now more Christians... In those countries that we saw as spiritually dark, the percentage of Christians, the number of Christians is higher than in the so-called Christian West. Christianity is growing in China at such a rate that by the year 2030, it will become the most predominant religion in China, according to many projections. That's exciting. That's exciting. Or just take the country of Nepal, for instance. It used to be a staunch Hindu kingdom. When I worked on two international conferences for itinerant evangelists, where we brought in thousands of Christian evangelists from over two hundred countries around the world, the most multinational gatherings in history. No other gathering has even been close in terms of the diversity. We had a few countries that we saw, saw as highly volatile. Nepal was one of those countries. We We had to treat them very sensitively. We had to virtually smuggle evangelists out of these countries in order to get them to the conference. (coughs) Because it was dangerous for them. They would be killed. And we might be targeted if the authorities found out what was happening. One evangelist, I'll never forget it. And I have his quote written down. One evangelist from Nepal said, it is illegal to evangelize in my country. I know when I return, I will be beaten and thrown in prison. They may even execute me. But it's been worth it to be here with all my brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world. That's how volatile it was then. But today, there are hundreds of thousands of Jesus followers in Nepal. Churches are thriving. Churches have been started in over 100 distinct people groups. So what am I saying? What does all this mean? It simply means that many of the people that we thought never had a chance to hear about Jesus have not only heard about Jesus, but they are passionate Jesus followers today. That's what it means. And here's the good news. Many of them are mobilizing and sending missionaries to us. Hallelujah, I hope they keep it up because we desperately need it. I want all of us to understand the toughest mission field in the world is not out there somewhere on the other side of the planet in Timbuktu. It's right here in our backyard. More cynicism, more scoffing, more skepticism, more hostility toward the gospel than anywhere else. In the world as a rule as a rule second God promises that all who seek him will find him Jesus made this amazing statement in Matthew 7 ask and it will be given to you seek and you'll find knock and the door will be open for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be open now the verbs there in Greek for ask seek and knock are present Active verbs. Here's what that means. You keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking. And Jesus said, The person who does that, God's going to open a door. I think there's a beautiful spiritual example of this in Acts chapter 10. You can read it when you go home. There's a man there, a Roman soldier named Cornelius. He was an explorer. He's what we at Grace would call an explorer. He was asking questions. He was seeking after God. He was what in that day was called a God-fearer. But he didn't know a thing, not a thing about Jesus. But he's asking, he's seeking, he's knocking. And through a mysterious set of circumstances, God brought the apostle Peter to his house. Peter told he and his family the good news about Jesus. All of them received Christ, embraced the faith, they were baptized, and today the same thing is happening in mysterious ways around the world but just consider what's happening within islam today muhammad died in 632 a.d and sit, since he died and islam was founded as a religion for over 1300 years there's been virtually no and i mean virtually no movement between islam and christianity people coming to faith in christianity from islam virtually nothing until about 12 years ago And something mysterious and wonderful has been happening. I tell you this based on the stats of missiologists who study this thing. Seven million Muslims a year, on average, have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ for the last seven years. And there are people out there who are saying, Look, God, if you're really there, I want to know you, I want to know who you really are. And God brings a missionary, God brings a Bible. God brings a book, God brings a video, God brings someone to share the good news. One of the guys who was in my wedding party, one of the groomsmen, Patrick Dennis, good friends, he and his wife Sandy, missionaries in one of these highly volatile countries that I'll not even name just to protect them, lead a Bible study at home. They're there ostensibly for other reasons, but their real kingdom reason is to share the gospel of Jesus. Patrick and I roomed together in college for a period of time. Great guy, great Christian guy. He told about a guy who ha- had been mentored by an imam, grown up within Islam, knew all the tenets, faithful follower of Islam, but he, in his heart, he knew something was missing. He was crying out to God, saying, God, if you're there, I really want to know He was asking, he was seeking. And one night he had a dream. And in his dream, there was a teacher telling good news. And at the end of his dream, and he woke up from this literally just all disturbed and sort of excited at the same time, because in his dream, the teacher was going like this, saying, follow me. The very next day, this man heard about Patrick and Sandy's Bible study in their home. He attended that night where they were studying in the Gospels. Guess what? Jesus' statement, follow me. And the man freaked out. Right there in the study. He just went ballistic. He said, I had this very dream last night. And I saw someone in my dream saying, follow me. Needless to say, he became a Jesus follower that night and was baptized just a few days later in the Mediterranean Sea. That is happening all over the world. God promises that those who seek him will find him. Third, I think it's important to remember that while everyone in the world may have not have equal amounts of information about Jesus, they are responsible to follow whatever measure of information God has given them. Here's what I want you to hear right here. Everybody has some revelation of God. Whether it's in creation, in their conscience, through various moral teachings, they have a moral imperative inside of them that God himself has put there. Romans 1 reads like this, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Catch this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men, catch this part, men are without excuse. But the sad news is, while those who seek and ask and not are going to receive more light, according to the Bible. The truth is, most people reject the very light they have. That's the sad news. And they choose to go their own way. But for anyone who is asking, seeking, knocking, it's pretty evident that there's a divine designer. When Helen Keller, the young girl who was born deaf, blind, and mute, that is, unable to speak, When Annie Sullivan, her teacher, was communicating to her through symbols and uh, sign language and words, she showed her how to form the word for God. And Helen Keller responded back, Oh, that's his name. I always knew he was there. I just didn't know his name. And that is true for anyone with eyes to see, with a heart, that's open, they have some revelation of God, and they're responsible for that. Fourth, another thought that flows right out of this last one is that God is a fair judge. Particularly if you're in an exploratory phase, I want you to hear that. God is going to judge everyone fairly according to the amount of light they had. Jesus taught in Luke 12, "...to whom much is given, much is required." And of course the opposite <coughs> is true, rather that's, uh, that's in uh, chapter 11, but in chapter 12 he says, the servant who knows what his master wants and doesn't do it will be punished severely. But the one who doesn't know what his master wants and doesn't do it will be punished much less. Jesus told people there will be greater judgment for those who heard and rejected him than for those who had lesser knowledge of. Of God. So in other words, no one's ever going to be able to shake their fist in God's face and go, you are unfair. And my last point I want to make here about this question, what happens to those who've never heard is that without exception, the person who asked this question has heard about Jesus. And so let me close today by gently reminding you whoever you are, wherever you are, you you have the information. You have the opportunity today. You are more responsible than that person maybe you wonder about on the other side of the world in some obscure place who's never had a chance to, to sit down and hear the gospel. So my question is, what's stopping you today from accepting the amazing grace that God has for you through Jesus Christ and that and that he so freely offers you know through the years I've watched literally hundreds of people struggle with what to do with the offer of Jesus and whether to embrace faith and put their trust in him or not and and I've I've concluded there are a couple of big things that really hinder people one of them is pride it's true we, we just struggle with pride. We're proud people. And proud people don't like to admit, I can't do enough. They have trouble admitting that Jesus has already done it for them. But, but Jesus said, unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, you're never going to enter the kingdom. In addition to pride, I think another barrier we have is fear of change we know that when it comes right down to it, it it's not so much our intellectual doubts that hold us back it, it's our concern over the things we'd have to change and maybe that's true for some of you maybe you're listening to me right now and you're going you know what I, I would have to change a relationship i'm in or or if i came to christ today you know what i i would have to change a sexual pattern of behaving that i'm into or or, or you might be sitting there going, you know what, I'm, I would have to change the way I approach work because I'm being unfair and immoral in my job. Or you might have to change an attitude. Or some of you might have to change the fact that, wow, you, your whole image is that you're a party animal. And boy, you sure wouldn't want to give up those great mornings where you're hugging the toilet. Going, man, we had a great time last night, didn't we? Oh, yeah, that was awesome. You wouldn't want to give that up. Oh. Proverbs 16 says there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. It's not narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way, but it is a narrow road that he's called us to walk and I just want to declare to you today in closing that Jesus is the way he's the truth and he's the light life no one but Jesus has conquered the grave he alone has mastered life and he alone offers you today forgiveness of your sins he's the son of God he's the Savior of the world he's the king of kings And he's the Lord of Lords, and he invites you today to follow him. I just wonder if we have any takers. Would you bow your heads for just a moment, please? He wants you to be his today. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be on the path that leads to the abundant life. So I'm going to ask you, how many of you right now in the quietness of this moment, while heads are bowed and, and eyes are closed, How many of you would be willing to just pray right where you are, God, that's what I want? How many of you would be willing just to say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God to be my forgiver, to be my leader, the authority in my life, and my guide, the only way to God? If that's you, would you just tell him that right now? Would you just put your faith in him right now and say, yes, God, I say yes to Jesus right now. Now, as we continue in this attitude of prayer, I simply want to ask you this. Since the Bible says we ought to confess our faith, I'm going to ask you to do something now courageous. I'm going to ask you to confess your faith to me in this way. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you all over the room, If you've said yes to Jesus today, I I just want you to confess it to me by just slipping your hand up. Let me see your hand. Thank you. Over there. Wow. I appreciate it. Just keep your hand up for just make sure. Wow. Way to go. Good for you. Wow. Wow. So many people just saying yes to Jesus. You can put your your hand down now. This is such an important day for you. And if you made that decision today, I'd simply want to encourage you to do this as I close. Let your first step of obedience as a Jesus follower be to to follow him in baptism. Now, all of our campuses do this a little differently. But Jesus wants you to identify with him through the waters of baptism. And so I encourage you, as soon as you can, to sign up, to let your lead pastor know, to let someone at the information center in your lobby know, listen, I made that decision, and I'd like to... I'd like to be a part of a baptism where I'm identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to celebrate with you folks in those baptismal waters. Now as we close today, everyone look up here. Could we just celebrate together those who have just made the most important decision of their life? Amen. Let's celebrate them together. We honor you and we celebrate you today. God bless you. Let's continue in worship. Wow, what a great message. What a great time to celebrate together. At this time, if we could have the ushers come forward as we continue to worship with our tithes